What? Uh, six. And I don't think we're going to get very far today. <laughs> uh, hopefully for a shorter message, but also hopefully because I didn't get I didn't get that far. I got a lot out of the first couple verses. Uh, but Father, thanks again for your word, and uh, sincerely thank you for your word. It's uh, something we need, and it guides us and shows us who you are and what the truth is, and uh, it makes things very clear. The darker it gets, God, it seems the clearer the light from your word is, and uh, I thank you for that. Let us uh, shine it, and God, use it to guide our steps. Let it be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Love you, Father. Jesus so we're in Genesis 6, uh, you know, God and man, that's what we're looking at, really, it's, I'm going to move a little bit. No, <laughs> <laughs> right. no, no, it's okay, I'm sorry. No, it's all right. Um, Blessed flexible, right? Uh, but uh, <laughs> but we're looking at God and man, really, the, the relationship between God and man in Genesis, and I feel like, I don't know, I guess the Lord is showing me something new this time through, and even just in my understanding and perception of Genesis, I've always kind of viewed it as the beginning, obviously, um, and the story of the beginning of man and what happens there. But I think I always looked at it, and I've probably said this before, but just in a different light, that uh, when I read it, it was alive to me, and it was history and the beginning and truth, but I think I always miss God's perspective on it, and I feel like Maybe I'm not going to convey it accurately enough, but I feel like I'm getting uh, perspective on the way God sees things and seeing really the Lord through Genesis more than I have in the past. I think that's really probably one of the better things we can take away. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not going to say this study is better than other studies because it's not, but I think you know, given doctrine and given studies into deeper word studies and truths and Hebrew and cultural significance and historical fact and archaeology and you know, uh, specific exegesis of the scriptures that, you know, I would love to listen to good Bible studies like that, but I think for us, for this time through, I think just the, the simple reading and understanding of maybe what the Lord, uh, what the Lord was going through, what the Lord was thinking and feeling through it, I think for me, I think if we have all that other stuff and we miss the Lord in it all, is it really worth it? You know, um, I think it's always better to know the Lord's heart than to uh, be able to read the Greek. And not that there's anything wrong with reading the Greek, but, you know, it's, I would love to learn Hebrew, but, you know, uh, maybe I don't love to learn it enough because I haven't learned it. <laughs> but you know what I mean. I think you know where I'm going. But the title of today's message is The Lord Was Sorry. And I believe it will be part one of The Lord Was Sorry. Uh, but Numbers 23, 19, start out with the scripture, says, God is not man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do, or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? If you remember, that was Balaam speaking to Balak. Uh, God had given him a word, and it wasn't exactly what Balak wanted to hear. And I think sometimes when God has stuff for us to say, it's not always what we want to hear. And along with that, along those lines of hearing things sometimes we don't want to hear, and being told things we don't want to be told, is what does it mean to be sorry? You know, if you're sorry for something, and, and I can say right now, I'm sorry, I typed the word sorry into Google when studying this because the, the music video that was the first result for the word sorry was a sorry pop star. And it was, uh, I won't say their name here because they, they don't need it. But man, is that really the first result in this day and age is some pop song? 
And I think the idea behind it is this uh, phrase from modern society. Maybe you've heard it. Sorry, not sorry. My wife and I joke about that. There's a friend at work and I says, you know, sorry, not sorry. You know, uh, it's kind of the way it goes. But sorry, when I finally got to the definition of it from Google, was feeling distress, especially through sympathy with someone else's misfortune. Like, you know, I'm sorry you lost this person or I'm sorry you're going through this. Uh, sort of uh, uh, sympathy. Uh, filled with compassion for them. Uh, could be a feeling of regret or penitence. Man, I'm, ooh, I'm sorry, I regret. I regret that. And, uh, or it could be used as an expression of apology. You know, I'm sorry. And I think I'm sorry is a good form of apology, but I think I'm sorry, would you forgive me, is the best form of apology. Because if you're not asking for forgiveness, you know, your motive for being sorry isn't always clear. But it's used as an expression of apology. It's used as a polite request that someone should repeat something that one has failed to hear or understand. I'm sorry? What? What? Sorry? <laughs> what did you say? I'm sorry. I missed that. Uh, you know, it's also being in a poor or pitiful state or condition. Man, that guy's like, you know, maybe you see someone who's homeless or someone who's going through a hard time or something. And you just think, man, they're in a sorry state. You know, maybe they don't need to be apologetic about anything, but their life is just sorry. Uh, it's also unpleasant and regrettable, especially on account of incompetence or behavior. Like, you know, there was something very, I'm sorry, something that happened at work. I'm sorry for the actions of my, sub, uh, sub, I was going to say subpoenas, superiors, it was inferiors, my subordinates, that's it, yeah. I don't have any subordinates, except my children. And they misbehave today, I'm sorry. <laughs> and they'll be sorry. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but sincerely, we're going to see here today that it says actually, uh, in the King James, says it repented the Lord and grieved him, or that the Lord was sorry and it grieved him. The word nakam, it means sorry, have compassion, repent, or even, I think, comfort oneself, which is an interesting way to look at it. Um, and the atzab, it means to hurt, to pain, to grieve, to hurt pain, uh, to torture, to vex. Uh, to fashion, make, form into shape, worship even. Uh, but God was actually sorry that he had made man. You know, God, the perfect embodiment of love, you know, the Bible says that God is love, was sorry that he had made us, that he made people. You know, people who had fallen, who, as we remember in uh, earlier chapters, disobeyed him pretty much from the beginning. We don't know how much time was between Adam being created and Eve being formed and then the fall. But I don't think it took too long. And however short or long it was, it was definitely too short. It should have never happened. But it did, and we would have done it too, I think. Um, I know, uh, I know, because we continue to do it. But there would be other times, you know, we see in the scriptures when God is sorry that he had made people. The Israelites, when they're wandering in the wilderness, I'm just going to wipe them out here. And Moses stands in the gap and says, no, 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 don't, you know, this would be a bad witness, you know. Protect the people, protect the people. And uh, Moses stands in the gap for them. Abraham, for a lot, and Sodom and Gomorrah, he's like, hey, God, there's ten righteous. Would you save them? He goes, sure, a lot. You know, I mean, sure, Abraham. And he ends up saving a lot. Um, you know, Sodom, there's also the people in the land before the Israelites. God gave them a chance, and a chance for however many years it was. And then uh, when he began to bring Israel in, that's when he judged the people that were in the land. 
But the only comfort, I think, um, I'm sorry, I missed a part. God was grieved, you know, that God was sorry, but he was also grieved, you know, that he wasn't uh, just angry that he made man, he was grieved. Uh, he was sorry. You know, these creatures, these pitiful creatures, will only ever be evil without me. You know, I think God saw, you know, he understood and he knew from beforehand, but I think when he looked upon people in their sinful state, yes, sin was bad, and yes, it had to be judged, and yes, I'm sure there was some righteous anger and wrath involved, but I think he grieved them most of all because he saw these people that were utterly hopeless and lost and in a sorry state without him, and that they didn't want him that he was their only answer, and they would refuse it. You know, sometimes you see people who are in, uh, whether they are homeless or a drug addict or in a bad relationship or whatever it is, and you've got an answer for them, and you've got a way out for them, but they're so caught up in their state, they don't want to look anywhere else, and they don't want to accept the one way out of it. He says, you know, that they will never love him, you know, and that they're to be pitied, um, and that they were almost without redemption, that they were too far gone. Um, and I think, uh, like that word carries some connotation of comfort, that the only comfort and consolation is this, was that they needed to be destroyed. That as God was sorry and God was grieved and God was doing everything possible to get their attention and that they had a creation around them and they had uh, not very many generations back or Adam and Eve, they knew the truth. But the only consolation was that there was a way to stop this sorriness. And that was they had to be destroyed, as we'll see. You know, like a bad relationship, it had to be ended. Sometimes you got, you're in a bad work relationship, you're in a bad uh, romantic relationship, or you've got a friendship that's just, just not good for you. It makes you sorry, it makes you grieved, but you have to end it. You have to end it. Because you know if it keeps going on, it's just going to get worse, and maybe it gets better for a little while, but then it gets even worse, and you realize, I've got to do something about this, I've got to end it. And I feel that, in a way, that's the way God felt. And man... I love these people, I care about them, but they want nothing to do to me. And at some point, it's got to end. But I think before we get to all that, what does it take to make you and me sorry? Are we sorry that we just got caught? Or are we sorry that we just have to face consequences? Are we sorry we're just losing out on a better thing? Man, if I hadn't done that, I would just have this better thing in my life right now, and I'm sorry I did that because I'm not getting the better thing. Do we regret doing it only because it hurt us? Do we regret maybe being unfaithful in a relationship only because now we're hurting because our relationship is messed up? Do we regret cheating on a test only because now we, uh, we lose out on it? I don't know. Or are we sorry because it hurts others even? Have we gone that step? Man, I really wish I didn't hurt that person because I see the hurt they're going through. I think that's even a long stretch sometimes when we're sorry. I think even further stretch than that, I speak at least of myself, is man, am I sorry or are we sorry because it even hurts God? We come to God and we tell Him we're sorry for our sin and we ask for forgiveness. Are we sorry because it really hurt Him? Are we sorry because he went to the cross for it? Even if that sin maybe felt good to us, are we really sorry about it? I'm not saying you're not. I'm just saying sometimes these are things we need to think about. What really is the depth of my being sorry? Is it a selfish depth? Is it a slightly unselfish depth? 
or is it completely focused on God, I've hurt him, I've hurt our relationship, and I've hurt the people that he's given to me. And with that, what will make us sorry? What length of things happening in our life or to us or to our loved ones or to around us is going to bring us to the point of being sorry? How much loss in our life does there have to be until we repent? Until we say, uncle, so to speak. I always hated that game as a kid. I tap out right away. Like, this isn't fun. <laughs> you know, Proverbs 51 says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And I think that that's obviously true, because of Scripture. A better thing is true. And a soft answer turns away wrath when there's an argument, or when there's something going wrong, or a fight. But what if that wrath is because they're caught? They're in trouble. Or as we play around with our kids and say, you're busted. If that wrath comes from there, I don't know that a soft answer turns that wrath away. Because that wrath is because of conviction. Because of being caught red-handed. And a soft answer isn't going to fix someone who is set in their ways of doing wrong. Sometimes you got to be rough. you got to throw them to the ground and say, you're under arrest. I'm not going to politely read you your Miranda rights. You're under arrest. But Proverbs 13.24 says, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. That rod doesn't have to be a rod. It could be just correction. But whatever measures it is, God says that if we love our children, we're going to discipline them promptly. Because I know for me, when I got away with something as a kid, and I got away with it, it would sink in, then I got away with it. Even if it was just for a couple of minutes. Oh, I got in trouble later, but that's okay. that's okay. I got away with it. This is no big deal. I can sit in it. I can take this. And my heart would be hardened and changed. But God says we must discipline them promptly. That when there's sin going on, and discipline is needed, it needs to be promptly dealt with. I mean, we see that. I mean, it's, it's obvious. You know, uh, people go on and, and get away with stuff for many years. Um... And they keep doing it. There's, there's no, if there's no prompt to change, well, then why change? If there's no resistance, well, then why not keep going the way you're going? It's obviously working for you. You're doing what you want, and you're getting what you want. So why stop? James 4, 6 says, But God gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That when there's a pride in being confronted with our sin or being confronted with uh, a need to be sorry, that God resists that pride. He says, you're in the wrong. I'm not going to bend to that. I'm not going to bow to that. I'm not going to give you a safe space for that. You're wrong. But when God comes to us, and there's conviction, and we submit to that conviction, and we're broken by that conviction, we go, oh God, forgive me. I knew what I was doing, and I still did it, but God, I was wrong. I'm sorry. You know, God gives grace there. God wants to give that grace, but he can only give that grace to us sometimes when we're ready to receive it. You know, God is gracious. God was gracious with Pharaoh. Every time he hardened his heart, he gave him more plagues, and he saved the worst for last. God was gracious in that. He didn't just start out killing Pharaoh's son. He gave him ten other opportunities before the, the situation got that bad. I think God is like that with us, where he'll warn us and keep striving with us and talking with us, and finally he's like, 
all right, I got to take this away. But I think at any time along that path, and even after the harshest punishment, if we come to him and are ready to change, he's willing to restore. He's willing to give back. Pharaoh died and lost his kingdom because he kept pursuing God and kept trying to defeat God. Pharaoh could have stayed on the throne. God didn't remove his kingdom. Pharaoh removed it from himself by running into the sea after the uh, Israelites. He just couldn't let it go. And I think sometimes in our lives we just can't let it go. We have to have the last word in. We have to be the toughest guy in the block. We have to make sure that our point of view is heard, whether we're right or wrong. And I think sometimes we just need to let it go. And don't start singing that Disney song. But I wonder how much it will take to make us truly sorry and want to act different. I know there's times in my life I look back and go, why did it take so long? What was I thinking? What was I doing? But I think we need to behave, you know, along with that. What's, gonna, what's, what's it going to take? What's it going to take in us to get us to behave for God's sake? Because he loves us. Not because we love us and because we want what's better for us. Oh, I'll behave because I'm going to get something better out of this. And not because getting into trouble is no fun, so I'm going to be a goody two-shoes because at least then I'm not in trouble all the time. Or even just the sense out of duty of what is right. Like, I know this is the right thing to do. I should really do the right thing. And even though I don't want to do the right thing, I'm going to do the right thing. But man, I wonder if we can go farther than that. I wonder if we can go farther than that. You know, because I think how often do we only do what is right when there's a reward? I know I've got a reward in heaven, brother. I know that the person's going to pat me on the back, or I know that it'll be a raise, or I know my boss is watching, or I know whatever. I'll do the right thing because I want a reward. Is that even obedience? I mean, I think technically it is, because it's like a workman who does his wages. He goes to his job because he wants his wages, and there's nothing wrong with that because that's the relationship. I'll pay you if you do this for me, and if you don't do it for me, I can't pay you because that's the job I gave you. I mean, that's kind of a right relationship there. You know, we don't necessarily have to do it out of love. It's, it's what they call work. But when it comes to doing things for God, are we just his servant? Are we just God's employee doing what's right all the time? Are we doing what's right for God because he loves us? Because he is God? And because he's gracious to us? And we don't need anything other than that. We don't need a reward in heaven. When we get there, we throw our crowns back. We say, God, we don't want this reward. We don't need this reward. You're our reward. Thank you for these things. We love you and we're glad that you love us and think that we should even have these things. But we know who we are. And we know who you are. And we just want to be with you. Are we like John laying our head on Jesus' chest saying, God, I just want to be next to you? Are we like Judas saying, why can't you sell that for more? You know, I've got my hand in the jar here. But with that intro... And man, I, I can't tell you, I just like just was very convicted by this uh, by this message last night. And it doesn't mean I'm going to change, but I hope it does. Let's go on and read the first three verses here together. Genesis 6, verse 1 says, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all those whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. Say, daughter and my daughter appears. That's 
what I'm talking about. Obedience. <laughs> but it says now it came to pass. And I think with that, we can take, maybe it didn't take long. Only a few generations, obviously. We, I handed that handout with, with the generations. And Ash and I were watching uh, Sight, and, Sight and Sound, Noah. They had it on the, the, the Pure Flix, exactly, yeah. And they had a, I, found, I found the Moses one on there, too, so they can watch it. I was like, this is cool, man. I'm glad I didn't drive four hours for it. <laughs> but it, no, it was cool. So it would be fun to take the kids. But we were watching it. We were talking about, well, is this accurate? Because his kids wouldn't even be born yet when God gave him this. And, you know, so it's like they obviously take a lot of liberties. Uh, but it was only a few generations from Adam to Noah. Um, you know, it didn't take long for it to come to pass that these things begin to happen. That it happened as it was always going to happen, I think. That the way uh, the river of humanity flows is always downhill. That man's course is always down. It's always away from God. It's always, it came to pass. You know, it's kind of like when the teacher would be called out of class in school... It came to pass that only a matter of time before people were out of the chairs, throwing stuff across the room, writing on the board. You know, if the teacher's only gone a minute, you'd all kind of be like this. But then two minutes, you'd start turning around and start talking. Five minutes, you'd be up on the chairs. You know, ten minutes, if it was a bad class, you know, you'd, I'd be back in my seat going, and the teacher comes back, man, and people are getting discipline handed down, and I don't want to be a part of that. <laughs> you know, there's a limit to, to how far I'd go, because I just didn't want to get caught. But it says, when men began to multiply in the earth, they think, wow, good, they're actually doing what they're supposed to be doing, they're multiplying, God said be fruitful and multiply, but obviously we know that this is not going to be a good thing here, uh, because uh, they're not doing it with godly ways, they're not parenting in godly ways, they're not living godly lives, there's no godly influence, and it's an ungodly society. So when daughters are born to them, these things begin to happen. And I think as we read there, daughters were born to them. You know, uh-oh. And I think every dad that has a daughter has the same first thought and same second thought. Um, maybe they're in a different order for someone else, but for me it was, oh, joy. They're ha oh, man, I, I'm so glad I'm having a beautiful baby daughter. I can't wait to see them and be their dad. And Oh, you know, it's like this like, love that you just get that's just like, you know, it's no wonder they get wrapped around your finger or you're wrapped around their finger, whatever the saying is, because... Um, but then the second thought is dread. Oh man, I'm having a daughter. Oh gosh, she's going to grow up. She's going to be a little girl. There's going to be little boys on the playground. She's going to be a teenager. She's going to have a cell phone. There's going to be boys. I'm going to have to kill them. <laughs> I don't want to go to jail. <laughs> How can I hunt? No. <laughs> I think that at some point, me even joking about that becomes premeditation. I don't know nope. that. But sincerely, you go, oh man, I know what I'm like. I know what I was like growing up. I know what I was like when I met her mother. Uh, I don't want her to meet me. Because <laughs> every guy knows what a guy's like. And we know what guys are like. Why? Because... We're guys. I remember having conversations with Ashley years ago, like, I don't know, do you know what guys really like? I'm like, that's not what they really like. <laughs> they may be nice to you, but there's only one motive. At least, at least outside the church, at least inside the church, there's hope of a secondary motive. You know, there's hope of it. I'm not saying it's always there. 
You know, because even inside the church, I was like, I like her. I want her to be my wife. I'm going to go start her car. <laughs> you know, I can't say that all my motives were completely selfless there. And it worked. But I'm just kidding. <laughs> she takes her head. No, it didn't work. She's only with me because God told her to be with me, and I know that that's the truth. But again, I don't think I don't think the ladies understand. But I think, on another sense, the times are getting more wicked, and the women are getting just as bad as the men. You read the news, and you see that there's like accusations of rape and things by women. I'm like, how does that even work? But I digress because that's what happens. You look at the things that women are getting into and women are doing, uh, the crimes, the children, the lewd behavior. Sometimes it's even worse than the men. See these women's marches and the stuff they're walk, marching around wearing, you go, really? I don't know. But I think suddenly, with our modern technology, I think most women and girls of this up-and-coming generation have already prostituted themselves for free, for affection, for likes on social media. Um, I mean, it's like you can't even, like, everywhere you go, it's, there's something sexual. Um, you know, what, what used to take a life of debauchery to get to... Now it just takes a quick selfie, and uh, and they've given away everything. And I read online the other day, and I don't know if it was a joke or not, uh, but it said it was like a, a tip. You know, watermark your nudes so that you'll know who leaked them. That's a great tip. I've got a pro tip for you. How about you don't take any at all? Then no one can leak them. It'll never leak because there's no water in a bucket to go anywhere. Just don't put it anywhere. But sure, I mean, think, I mean, I know we all know young people in our lives. And it's, it's tragic, you know, I remember being 16 in high school and pursuing relationships and thinking I was the man and a man and is whatever and, man, you know, like, it doesn't take any effort to get that far anymore. And in fact, they go farther because they're told that it's okay. And they're just being destroyed. And they're going to be sorry one day. But back to directly the study, I think that this is where we really need to slow down and read what the Bible is saying here. Because it says it quick, and it reveals some deep things of old. And then it kind of carries on, like, <laughs> I'm going to reveal this to you. But then we're going to carry on like none of it ever, none of it ever happened. Uh, until later, you read later in Scripture, it comes back up. But I think when the Bible is uh, silent on things, obviously we need to take note. I think Chuck Smith used to say that, uh, that when it's silent on things, that we're going to be silent. But I think we also need to take note about those things that's silent on and say, okay, well, we'll be silent on it. But also, when the Bible reveals things that seem strange, I think we also need to take note. Sometimes we read the strange things about we kind of go, it's kind of like we hit like, I don't know, we're buffering a little bit, or we hit, a, we hit like, bumps in the road, and we're kind of like, oh, that was strange. And, you know, I think sometimes when God lets it hit, hit us like that, we need to slow down and go, wait a minute, what was that? Did I just run over something? You know, is there something wrong with my router? You know, do I need to, to see what's going on here? Just to kind of get a quick look and understand, that way we have a better understanding as things go. And I think sometimes we don't do that, and then 
we get that bump in the road later on when we're not reading the scripture and we don't know what's going on there when if we just paid attention when we had the bump in the road in the scripture we'd know what all that noise was but I think that God knows that we can't handle everything yet I mean obviously look at what we do with the little we do know how we can't even handle that like Jesus is like I can't even tell you earthly stories how can I tell you heavenly stuff and he's telling the parables but Romans 16 19 says uh, for your obedience has become made known to all Therefore, I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And we're going to read things here that are evil. And we need to be wise in the good things, but simple concerning evil. I think we need to understand that there's evil. We need to have a simple understanding that these evil things do occur and that they are out there. But we're not to pursue it any further than that. Because the further we start pursuing evil, we go, it just gets, we just get sorry that we saw it. I feel like... I remember seeing these movies in high school that were on VHS, and now you can probably Google it and get it in two seconds, but it was like all about people dying and these weird things, and it was like this weird thing that people would watch. And you watch it, and you go, I mean, I'm sorry I watched that. I, didn't, I really didn't even know that. I mean, you think about, like, policemen or firefighters or doctors and some of the weird injuries and stuff they see. Like, uh, you know, there's a reason why they, they have stuff to deal with. Because they see horrible stuff all the time. Yeah, I, 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 we just don't need to understand it in detail. I think that that's why it goes into it a little bit. To say, hey, this is what happens. This is a real thing. But you don't need to know more than that because it's just going to mess you up. You're going to wake up with nightmares and you're not going to want to, you know. You're just going to have to carry around something you don't want to carry around. But let's read verse 2 again. It says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. You know, the sons of God, that's a term for angels, and I understand there's a debate around this because, honestly, I believe people can't handle what these verses are saying, and so they try and simplify it and make sons of God into a term about just Adam's kids. But it would have said man. The Bible has been very clear saying man, 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 sons of man, sons of sons of sons. But as we read through the scripture, we see sons of God always referring to angels being the sons of God. And they're not literally sons of God, but it's just a term that's used, um, you know, because they're a spiritual being. And as we read through Scripture, we see that some angels are indeed weird-looking. We read in Revelation, Ezekiel, and Daniel, we see they have wings and eyes, and the, they go wherever they, they go one direction, they come back another. They have, uh, you know, multiple wings, multiple faces that kind of look like certain things. And I think these are like the spiritual beings or creatures that... You know, obviously God makes things on earth, and it's a picture of things in heaven. So we have creatures on earth that look kind of weird. Like, I saw this video the other day of, like, a giant beetle on someone's hand. And I'm like, what are you doing? That's a monster. You need an axe to kill it. Like, <laughs> that exoskeleton is, like, quarter-inch steel. I don't know, but, like, ugh. You know, I had to turn it off because I don't want to carry it around with me. But um, I think the same thing is spiritual. That there are spiritual creatures in heaven that are, you'd look and go, I don't know what that is. Four faces, one looks like an ox. You know, John, John's talking in Revelation, you read it. But there are the other angels that, I believe, look like people. Or at least, like, can kind of make themselves look like people. Or, you know, if you don't look too closely, you're not going to notice. Um, and I think it's very clear. Hebrews 13.2 says, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers. And I don't think that means strange people. <laughs> it just means people we don't know. Because it says, For thereby some have entertained angels unaware. If we look at the Bible, we see Abram. 
he sees three men coming to him. One ends up being the Lord, and two end up being his angels. And they, end, they have a meal together, and they tell that uh, they're going to have a son. And they go down to Sodom and Gomorrah, and then we don't see the Lord anymore. We just see the angels going to Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, the people want to molest them. And they have to go into Lot's house and strike them blind. But they weren't like, hey, what are these things? What are those wings? They thought they were men. We see that throughout the Bible when angels appear to people. They're not like, when they look weird, they kind of write down that they look weird. But other than that, they just say an angel appeared. And just kind of knew it. It's just it's a person, but they're an angel. They're, uh, you know, we're made a little lower than the angels. You know, I, I apologize to my mom, but there's no baby angels. She's got, like, this thing with angels and little cherubs and little idols all around her house. I mess with her. <laughs> it's like this, this Roman idea of a baby angel, and I, uh, I think it's like Cupid, and then there's other Roman mythology that ties into it, but there's no baby angels, no little chubby little babies, like Alicia's not floating around, you know, <laughs> in heaven with, <laughs> no, that's not an angel, they're powerful, they're warriors. But as far as what's seen in scripture, I believe that all angels are male in form, you know, maybe when I get to heaven I'll see that there's others, I don't even know, but all that I see in scripture are male angels, you never see, it's Gabriel, Michael, Lucifer, they're all male angels. And it says there's no marriage in heaven. In the resurrection in Matthew 22, there's no human marriage. But obviously, these guys are doing something a little errant here. You know, and I think about it this way. What does God do in the story of Jesus? God impregnates a human woman. But in a holy way. To bring about the Son of God and the Son of Man through her. Not in this perverse way, it just says the Holy Spirit overpowered her and she became pregnant. But what do these fallen angels want to do? They want to impregnate human women in an unholy way. And what do we see here? We see angels taking wives. Something they weren't supposed to do. This is where it gets weird and why we're all we're spending a little time on it, but then kind of, just because I think we gloss over it and we need to actually think about what is the Bible actually saying here? We see these angels getting married, and I think, in a, I don't know that they, you know, like you were talking about, I don't think they had anyone make them a cake or 450 cupcakes. I don't know if they had a wedding ceremony. But in a sense, there was carnal knowledge of women. You know, they were living amongst people. You know, and really, in the Old Testament, it was like, when you went in and, and knew your wife carnally, you were married. That was it. And we miss that these days. We think you can just do that with anyone. Now, there's no connection, but that's not true. We see these angels interacting with people, perhaps making it clear that they were angels, maybe showing off their powers, disappearing and appearing or whatever, or maybe not. Maybe they were just in incognito mode, just kind of hanging out, like, they don't know what I really am. And isn't that like the enemy? Kind of hang out with people and not let them know what's really going on and deceive them? But in any event, at the end of it, there's sexual activity going on between fallen angels and you can get into a whole study of angel, fallen angels versus demons and stuff. And Chuck Messer's got some interesting points on that. And, you know, I haven't done a deep enough study to make a, a firm enough belief to preach, but I've got my own belief on it. But think about that for a minute. But just no longer than a minute, because it's scary and it's weird. But most of all, it's unholy. I think that's why God wants us to be simple concerning evil, because he wants us to be holy. But look at the direction of sexual sin in the world. And look at the spiritual direction of the world and see how they're both aligned. See how they're both twisted together. 
and how that there's really always a spiritual association with sexual activity. That's why God created it that way. He said it's got to be within marriage because it's a union physically and spiritually of people to become one. It's a picture of Christ and the church, of God and man coming together, of husband and wife, of offspring, of life, of immortality. You know, because you have kids, your life goes on forever. But sexual perversion and spiritual perversion go hand in hand. Look out throughout history with idolatry. There were sexual practices, orgies throughout history at temples of the gods. You would go to worship your god Zeus and, hey, there's a temple prostitute there. I don't, I don't want to go worship today. Yeah, I don't think people skipped church back in the day at the temple of Zeus because, you, I don't know. In a worldly sense, it's not a bad deal. Or Molech. Well, what happens to all these babies that come out of these illicit sexual relations or even valid sexual relations? Well, they were sacrificed. That they might have a good harvest. That their checkbook might be full. That their, uh, their yacht might have enough fuel to go on vacation. They'd sacrifice a baby. And look at modern society. We want to make sure we have the big house, the big car, all the money in the world, and I think even beyond all that, just freedom to keep living a childlike life as an adult with no responsibility. And so what do we do? We do the act that requires the most responsibility, and we relegate it to an app, swiping left or right, and then when something comes out of it, we say, oh, it's not a baby, it's just a choice. Sexual practice and satanic worship is when anything goes. The world says spiritually, you have no moral accountability, so sexually, you can do whatever you want. And when you get stuck doing sexually whatever you want in that path, you're going to want a spiritual doctrine that tells you that it's okay because you're so trapped and so caught up in it. It's a double vicious cycle. One feeds the other. And is it any wonder that modern society is so completely messed up and far gone? And, and I hate to say it, guys, but I think it's going to get even darker before the rapture, and even quicker than it has in the past 10 years. You know, we talk about, from the time we went to high school to now, it wasn't that long ago, you know, just a, almost a couple of decades, and now that makes you feel old, but the things that have happened since then, the way kids feel they are. You know, I was at a, a work meeting at a client, and it was like between meetings, and one of the clients was talking about their child, and how she's at college, and like redefining herself and changing her name. And, and I kind of joke, like, that's why my kids aren't going to college. And I didn't know what the setting was like. I didn't really know this person. Uh, she's like, really? I'm like, I'm like I say it kind of kiddingly because I don't want to pay for it. But, you know, I, you know, then the meeting was like kind of starting up and you're going. But it was kind of like, you know, I could tell that she knew that she didn't understand what was going on with her child. She didn't understand all this stuff. And she was kind of like, I don't know if she, she didn't seem like she approved of it, but she just felt out of control and like kind of had to let her kid do whatever she wants. And just, it's sad and it's heartbreaking, but it's like, it's all tied together. These people are looking for definition. They're looking for spiritual truth, but they're fed spiritual ambiguity. So what do you get from spiritual ambiguity? You don't even know if you're a boy or girl. I mean, what's more obvious in most cases than that. And I, like we said the other week, I understand the difference, but in any event, all this stuff destroys the family. You know, pride can get a man fired or a woman fired, but lust can kill a marriage, can kill a family, and a ministry. I mean, pride can do that too, but I think it takes a little bit longer. 
What's the Lord's immediate response to all this? He doesn't say, let me go down and talk to them. Because he's obviously already doing that. He says, my spirit will not strive, or you could translate that, abide, with man forever. He says, you guys are so errant sexually and spiritually, I've got nothing left I can do for you. You can't accept the spiritual truth. You don't want the physical truth. What else is there? You know, man desires the, desires the spiritual and desires the sexual. I think man will get his fill at any cost. You know, Proverbs 13, 20 says, Such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wickedness. I think that that's our generation. They eat of what they want to eat. They do what they want to do. They wipe the ketchup from the cheeseburger or whatever off their face and say, I've done nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong in this. Isn't that what Satan said in the garden? Have a bite. There's nothing wrong here. This is good. It makes one wise, right? But what is the ultimate fruit of all this? It's always death. It's death of the innocent. Because who dies at the altar of Molech? Not the lust, not the person, but the baby. What did the baby do? They just showed up one day. I'm alive. I mean, what did you and I do to be alive? Nothing. We just came to be. And I saw this uh, protest sign the other day. There was this girl at one of these marches and said, Pro-choice, the radical idea that a woman is a person too. Like a woman can have a decision too. Not just a man, but a woman has a decision. That's feminist garbage because I say pro-life, the radical idea that a baby is a person. And a baby has a right. And where do girls come from? Baby girls. It's like, it's like so completely right in your face, blind and absurd. You go, what are you thinking? Because they're not thinking. Because they're blinded. They're sexually caught up. They're spiritually twisted. And they can't see. They can't see. And that's why they're angry. Because they don't know they can't see. But they can tell they can't see. Because they keep stubbing their toes, so to speak. You ever stub your toe in dark? I stub my toe. You're not the baby thing. Like, oh my goodness, so my toe is going to rip apart. I was going to be hooved or something. <laughs> That's why they're angry. Because they're hurting. And they're told that that hurt isn't hurt. And when you're told that your hurt isn't hurt, don't you get angry? I remember, you know, every time your parents like, that hurt. And your parents go, that doesn't hurt. You go, yeah. what? <laughs> you hurt me. Can't you say sorry? You know, that's the real reason I won't go to, I'll say it again, I won't go to places like Starbucks because I'm pro-life. My coffee choice can be anywhere else. I'm not saying, you know, you can do what you want, be convicted about what you want to be. But I don't go there because I can't separate the two. I can't separate how much money they put into Planned Parenthood and the feminist movements. And even saying that sickens me, Planned Parenthood. What a disgusting term that is. Oh, it sounds nice. Oh, you're planning for it. Oh, well, we're going to go, and in six months from now, we're going to have a baby. Or It's nine months, right? <laughs> nine months, we're going to have a baby, and we want to plan our parenthood, and we're going to go to Babies R Us and get this, and that's not what it is. That's not what it is. You already are a parent. You're planning to not be a parent when you've already done the things that make you a parent. You have, should have planned to wait. And we openly sacrifice babies. And I'm going to get on the soapbox because I know that that's part of what I'm supposed to do with my life. But to march for it, we're proud of it as our modern enlightenment of choice. 
But who offered the first temptation to exercise choice against God's will? I think you were talking about Billy Graham before. He said, if God does not judge America, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. And I think the antediluvian, the pre-flood people as well. If God judged them for what they were doing, why well, would he judge us? I mean, I understand he judged Jesus on the cross, but at some point there has to be national judgment. And it's interesting that his spirit won't strive with man forever. And I'm going to try and wrap it up here. Because I'm not going a little long. You know, John 16 says, I tell you the truth. He's going to send the comfort us to depart. And this is what I want to get to. Uh, when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. You know, that, that God's Holy Spirit was already striving with man. That's why he said, I'm not going to strive with them forever. He's already convicting them here. He's already working in them. He's already revealing to them what's right and wrong. And they were aware of it, and they still chose wrong. And that's us today. Our world is aware. The Western world is aware of right and wrong. The Western world was founded on Christianity. I would not be here without Christianity. But just as in the days of Noah, the love of many is growing cold. You read the, I don't know if you read the news story the other day uh, about these kids who laughed and joked and took a video of a guy drowning and calling for help. Talk about love going cold. You read the news about kids beating up old people on the subway and, and just, I don't even, like, I think about, oh, I'd like to go to the 9-11 memorial again. And I think, I don't really want to go to the city anymore. <laughs> But the Holy Spirit stops striving with man during the rapture when he removes the church, right? The church is a major instrument of God striving with man. Obviously, um, he does the work personally. God personally works in everyone's life, convicting the sin of judgment and righteousness. But then he brings us along as sort of the second wave. In our personal relationships, or maybe in our personal ministries. But then the church follows up and equips our personal ministries and also is... Uh, I believe a sign of national judgment, a national institute to say, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. But look at the church today. It doesn't do any of that. Even the Catholic Church is saying, well, I think it's coming out against the evangelicals boldly claiming that they got it all wrong. Because there's this agenda behind it. You know, why do you think that people want separation of church and state? And that's even a misquote of the Constitution. But it says, because the people of this world want a government of this world, and not of God. They, they want to do whatever they want to do, and they don't want to have anyone tell them what's right and wrong. And a government that condones, subsidizes, defends the demoralization, and elevates their chosen sin, and labels anyone who would tell them otherwise, even in a loving way, as discriminatory, bigotry, hated, closed-minded, or even a terrorist. You think it's going to be long, guys, before we are called terrorists? For we, people of this book, are called terrorists, before they start tracking all our email, all emails, it's not long. It's already happened. Even in the other election cycles, it came out that Obama and his people at the IRS were targeting conservative groups. What are most conservative groups that are politically minded? They, a lot of them are Christian-based. Trump actually had to defend the church's right to talk political about political things and not lose their 501c3. There's some role that can be like 5% of the communication or something. Um, but it's like, it's such a hypocritical role because it's like the Democrats go out and they, I know I'm on a soapbox here, but they go out and then they go stand at these other churches that are for 
the liberal government. So it's like, it's messed up, guys. I can't wait to get out of here. But again, look at the West and how it was built by the church. And compared to the rest of the world, that wasn't. The rest of the world, like communist China or the Soviet Union or Southeast Asia or South America, the whole world's falling apart. They, they, the parts of the world that abandoned Christianity have fallen apart. And now look at America as we've abandoned Christianity. It's falling apart. And that's why the whole world's trying to come together because they think that if they come together, they can get it back in place. You wonder why the Constitution is shredded. You know, you think of Marx or Darwin had had a hand in the Constitution. They would shred it if Darwin signed it. They wouldn't shred it. But it's the same thing. They treat it as a living document, not solid doctrine. And yet they defend a fake theory as doctrine. They defend all the things that tell them what they're doing is right, is right. You know, enough soapboxing. God in his grace... In here, it says that he gives even them, this globally wicked society, 120 years. And I think some talk about this verse meaning people's lifespan would be 120 years. And I see how you get that from there. You know, it doesn't really happen until after the flood, until Joseph. People live about 100, 120 years, and that's even today, um, you know, give or take a few years. Um, but really here, it's a countdown. It's God directly saying, all right, I've gotten this bad. I could destroy them right now and be totally comforted by it and not have to deal with it anymore. But I'm going to give them 120 years. I think it's like a parent who counts down. All right, they said the right thing to do. The child doesn't do it. They say, Jacob, count of three. Two, one. He's in his room. Just like that. And then God is going to count down from 120 years. He's a little more gracious than me. And maybe they wouldn't come back. But... He's not a ruthless dictator. He sets the clock with ample time to repent. But sincerely, how much time do we need? Isn't he gracious? You know, there have been times in my life when God was telling me not to do something, and I did it anyway, and then he let a deer hit my car, and it wasn't totally busted, but I knew that if I had just not gone where I went that night, I wouldn't have hit that deer. And he says, man is indeed flesh. Man is indeed flesh. I think the rod is obvious. You know when there's something rotting in the trash, right? Especially with diapers. I, you know, I walked in yesterday. The kids were out swimming. At me and Mom, Pop, Pops, and I was doing some work in the garage. And I come in like, yeah, there's a diaper in there. <laughs> the rod is off, is is obvious. Um, you know, it's it's long gone from being questionable item in the fridge, not the diaper, but <laughs> to being uh, gone. And I think, man, how long does God have to give us? How long is it until we turn and repent and say we're sorry and realize? The way I'm doing things, God, is not the way you would have me do them. God, today I pray that you continue to work that in us and help us do things the way you would do them, even for a selfish motive to start. But God, let that at some point be your motive in our lives to do the right thing and to worship you and follow you. Thank you that you are gracious and you are slow to anger. And uh, God, that you are uh, abounding in mercy. God, we ask for mercy for our world and for our country. And for those caught up in abortion and uh, violent feminism, so to speak, those who are caught in oppressive governments and in jail for the wrong reasons, God be with them. But God, would you, would you work? Give us time in these last days. But God, we know that if you were to come soon, come today, it would be it'd be just as just. So come soon, we pray. But until you do, God, use us and mold us and make us that others might come to you. In Jesus' name, Amen. God bless you, Jax.